What a joy and a gift always to uh, be gathered together by our Lord, to worship Him, to fellowship with each other. Uh, Let's continue to do that as we come before His Holy Word. I'll invite you to open with me again this week to John chapter 13 and find verse 31. It's where we'll begin. Now, we will finish chapter 13 this morning, uh, and, uh, and we'll actually push past it and move into chapter 14. We have just walked through, last Sunday, the beginning of the betrayal. As Judas at last leaves the twelve and runs into the night. And we'll see it this morning. In his leaving to go and to betray, it's as if a last domino has fallen. As the betrayer has gone to go and to do his work. Plans are now in motion. So we're now talking about and hearing our Lord speak to his disciples in the context of, if we're thinking about their time frame, tonight's events that will lead to tomorrow's crucifixion. This is how close we are. Jesus sees this coming. He sees the nearness of it, as he'll talk about this morning. And Jesus says that what this means, what he sees coming, is that God's glory is about to be put on display. Now, it's helpful for us to think about the meaning of that, because we understand in a, in a very real way, in a big picture way, that God is glorified constantly in the creation, isn't he? God is constantly being glorified through what he has done, through the things he has made. His glory is emphasized Uh, It has been through this gospel. It is throughout the scriptures. Throughout the gospels, when God does something wonderful, people glorify him for it. You remember in John 11, Jesus even said that Lazarus' death was, quote, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. John 21 is going to tell us that Peter's future death is going to serve the purpose of glorifying God. In the book of Acts, over and over again, God's work among the Gentiles are said to bring him glory. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, as Christians give to meet one another's needs, it says God is glorified. Uh, You can think of Psalm 19. In every moment, the beautiful immensity of outer space is doing what? It is declaring the glory of God. All of that is the case. And yet, when we read verses 31 and 32, which will begin our passage this morning, it feels like something of a mountaintop is being described, some kind of a summit. And in fact, that's exactly the case. God's glory displayed in the universe to be seen, the cause for his creation to give glory to him, both of those are about to find their pinnacle in what's coming. But it's something of a paradox, isn't it, for us to find that the glory of God's Son is going to reach its pinnacle as that Son hangs and dies a cursed death. It doesn't look like glory. And to those who are there witnessing, it doesn't look like glory. This is something that J.C. Ryle wrote about very helpfully. He, speaking of Christ's words in verse 31, He says this, he says, the eleven did not understand it. He's referring to Jesus' words as we're about to read them. Now is the Son of Man glorified. He says, the eleven did not understand it. And no wonder, in all the agony of the death on the cross, in all the humiliation which they saw far off or heard of the next day, in hanging naked for six hours between two thieves, in all this there was no appearance of glory. On the contrary, the event calculated to fill the minds of the apostles with shame, disappointment, and dismay. And yet our Lord's saying here was true. And Ryle is exactly right as he thinks of Christ looking to the cross. But we're going to see even more than that this morning. Because as Jesus speaks about glory here. What we're going to find is he, is he is not only looking at the cross. He's not only speaking about the cross. Jesus is going to describe glory that extends even beyond himself to the Father himself. 
And it's going to speak about glory that goes beyond the cross, that goes into heaven itself. And in fact, it's because Jesus is looking not only at the cross, but beyond it, that we see the progression that we're going to see in this morning's text. We're going to walk through John 13, 31 to 14, 3. That's our passage for this morning. And as we do that, we'll hear the focus shift and come to rest in three different places. And they're very much related. Jesus' bringing up of the first one is going to result in him bringing up the second. And the second will necessitate the third. There's a real continuity that we'll see here. Um, And it does lead me to lament a little bit where the chapter break comes here. It does make sense why we've chosen to put a chapter break there. But it threatens us, if we're not careful, to really interrupt what Jesus is doing here. What he's saying to his disciples. So before we go any further, let's, let's read the text. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in John 13, verse 31, John continues in this way. Speaking of Judas, he says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? Why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. As we walk through this, we're going to find a threefold progression of emphasis, and that's what makes our outline for the morning if you're taking notes. So we're going to hear of these three things. First, we're going to hear of the arrival of glory. Second, we'll hear of the departure of Jesus. And then third, the problem with Peter. Peter presents another problem, another opportunity, maybe we could say, in a positive way for Jesus to clarify. So the arrival of glory, that'll be verses 31 and 32, the departure of Jesus in 33 to 37, and then the problem with Peter from verse 38 through into chapter four. Now, I'll warn you as we start here, we're going to spend much more time in the first point than the other two. Uh, And that's because as we hear Jesus describe what's coming in terms of glory, and we hear Jesus describe relational realities between himself and the Father, we find this morning an opportunity that we really just cannot pass up. And so I warn you ahead of time, be ready as we look at the first point here to think in terms of understanding the text here, but also be ready to think about big picture realities in God's eternal plan. We're hearing things that Jesus speaks to here that are really significant for us to to see rightly and understand. Okay, so you've been warned as that comes. Number one, the arrival of glory, verses 31 and 32. 
Judas has left the building. And you can tell that Jesus sees his departure as significant. The now here, he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. So speaking directly to the fact that the betrayal has now begun. Wheels are in motion. In fact, some would argue that we should even think of, you know, we've been talking about since we started chapter 13, the beginning of the farewell discourse. Jesus' words of encouragement and preparation to his disciples. Some argue that we should really think of the farewell discourse as not starting until now, until verse 31. Because of the newness now of the situation as Judas leaves, I think that it's a little much to do that. I think that that diminishes what Christ has already done and said to his own in this chapter. But the point is fair enough that now that Judas has gone and is actively betraying Jesus to the authorities, his hour has come. And we can start with a question. How does Jesus view this thing that is coming? He is seeing an approach. As he sees it, what does he see? And the answer comes to us there in verse 31. It says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. This is what he sees coming. And I would pause here for a moment to, for us to take a breath because, if, and maybe this isn't the case for all of us in here, but if you're like me, the sentence that's coming up is a sentence that is, is a little bit confusing. There are certain things I can read and get easily confused. Um, it it uh, causes tension sometimes at home. Sometimes I think, you know, I might actually be someone who's hard to be married to in certain circumstances. But I'll, uh, and I think I've mentioned this before, I will, I will reach for the flag when we're talking. If my wife and I, something will happen like uh, this sentence. I wrote this one down as an example. Lori and Gladys and I were talking at care group, and she said that she's got an appointment this next week, and I'm already reaching for the flag before she gets there. I want to say, stop, I don't, who are you talking about? Lori, Gladys, I, she said she's got an appointment. Who, who, are, we, who, who are we talking about here? It causes tension when I can get uh, critical like that. But the good news for her is that she has some uh, ammunition now for me the next time because this thing that Jesus says in verse 31 is very much that way. At least it hits my ear in that same way. And so what am I going to say about that? There's not much for me to criticize there. Our Lord can speak how he would like to speak. But maybe some of you struggle like I do with what follows here. Because what, here's what we read. Just listen to it again. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. I wrestle with that kind of a sentence. Um, if you're like me, this may be helpful to you. In verses 31 and 32, when you see the word Him, know that it's Jesus. And when you see the word God or the word himself, know that it's the Father. So he says, now is Jesus glorified and the Father is glorified in Jesus. If the Father is glorified in Jesus, the Father will also glorify Jesus in himself, in the Father. And will glorify Jesus at once or immediately. Now with that in mind, we can notice a couple of things here. First, notice the, the tenses that Jesus is speaking in. He seems to be talking about two things here, two instances of glory, one that will be happening more immediately than the other. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. He actually uses a past tense verb there. It leads commentators to, to say things like, Jesus is speaking of this glorification as if it has already happened. He's emphasizing how close this is. And remember, it's an immediacy that has been launched by what? It's been launched by Judas's departure. What did Judas's departure launch? It launched the arrest and the crucifixion. He's speaking of the glory that is coming very quickly in the crucifixion. So this glory, now is the Son of Man glorified, refers to the cross specifically. 
And to Jesus, this string of events that culminates at the cross, he says, is in fact the pinnacle on earth of his glory. That's something that we need to explore this morning. But before we do, just notice one other thing that he says there in verse 32. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Using that same past tense, emphasizing the same event. This thing is about to happen, and our Lord says, not only when it happens will it bring glory to Jesus, but by it, Jesus will be bringing glory to the Father. Jesus and his Father will both be put on display in glory in the event of the crucifixion. Now, why is that? Why will it be so glorious? And why will it bring glory to the Father as well as to the Son? Let's think about both of these persons. The Son first. Why will this bring glory to Jesus? That's one of those questions that's like an onion. There are a number of, of components to the answer to that question. Think about what the cross is going to be, what Jesus is going to be displaying as he goes to the cross to die for the sins of his people. This thing is going to be, in all the history of mankind, the supreme demonstration of selflessness. As the true spotless lamb of God willingly lays down his life for others. Think about what Chance read to us A few minutes ago in Isaiah 53, this servant, this one who will go, is going to be stricken for the transgressions of others. And it it told us that, but it also emphasized that he's, he's going and being stricken for their transgressions, even as they don't even recognize the loving gift that he's giving to them. They will not perceive that he is being cut off for their sake. There will be no credit there will, be no, there will be no recognition. There will be scorn and mockery. And yet he's going to give this thing. He's going to do this. In all the history of man, the supreme demonstration of selflessness. It's going to be, in all the history of mankind, the supreme demonstration of love on the face of the earth. Paul writes in Romans 5, Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is the supreme demonstration of love. So that John will write elsewhere, we know love because he first loved us. This is love. Not that we have loved him, but that he has loved us and given his life in this way. We can continue answering this question. How is this glory to Jesus? This is going to be, in all the history of mankind, the supreme act of obedience to God. This is not a plan. Jesus going to the cross for the atonement of the sins of God's people. That's not a plan that is univocally his. He has said it over and over again in this gospel. He has come to do the will of his Father. He says only what the Father gives him to say. He does only the things that are pleasing to his Father. Haven't we heard this time and time again? And that means that in doing what he's doing, It's not only Jesus whose glory is being put on display. He is doing this as an act of obedience to his Father. And in so doing, then, we can begin to hear the ways in which he is glorifying not only himself, he's glorifying his Father. His Father's glory is being put on display. We need rescue, don't we? And Jesus' work on the cross displays for us the Father's willingness to even to give his own Son to rescue us. We know intrinsically the, the necessity and goodness of justice. It's, a part, it, we're, we're, it's baked into the cake for us 
a demand, a, a craving for justice, at least for other people, right? The cross displays for us the Father's unflinching commitment to justice, such that sin will by no means go unpunished, even if dealing with it cost his own son. The cross displays those things in the plan and mind and purposes of the Father, but it even displays something we could never dare to hope. It displays that the Father is, in fact, willing to accept the payment of a substitute in my place. How could we dare to hope such a thing? In sending his Son for the, the sins of his people, atonement is being made on the cross in a way that is substitutionary, and this is according to the plan of God. You see, all of the ways that the cross does not only glorify the Son, but that by it, the Father himself is glorified. And this is exactly what Jesus describes in verse 31. And what is about to take place at the cross, the Son of Man is glorified, and the Father is glorified in him. Now, he uses this to draw a conclusion from it in verse 32. Do you notice how 31 and 32 are connected? Verse 31, the Son of Man is about to be glorified, and in what he's going to do, he's going to glorify the Father. And then verse 32, what's the first word there in verse 32? Is, is, in yours, is it the word if? He tells us that in 31, and then he says, if God is glorified in him, if this is true, that in what I'm about to do on the cross is going to glorify the Father, if God is glorified in him, then what? Now we get a future tense description of glory. He says, if God is glorified in him, God also will glorify him in himself. There is going to be a resultant reciprocal action. When the Son glorifies the Father, then as a result, the Father will glorify the Son. I mean, you can, you can even hear in this a relationship between the two re receptions of glory. Jesus glorified his Father, and therefore the Father will glorify the Son. And there is a name for what we're talking about here, for what Jesus is describing. Remember I said we're going to think big picture here, even beyond these verses. What we're talking about there is called the covenant of redemption. It's just the recognition that what is happening in our redemption as sinners is the result, in fact, of a divine, eternal plan between the Father and the Son. The Father will send the Son to be born to represent a covenant people in faithfulness. The Spirit will lead him and empower him. The Son will obey will obey perfectly, will, as Matthew 3 puts it, will fulfill all righteousness. He will obey even to the point of death, the death of the cross, and thereby he will earn the reward of glory that has been promised to him. A reward, by the way, this is somewhat significant for you and me, a reward that he will then turn and share with his people. We're talking about our very inheritance in Christ Jesus. This is something that the Father has promised to give to the Son as the Son has been faithful and obeyed. And I would have us just notice the way that the Bible describes this plan of God. And in doing this, we'll probably be hitting some passages you're familiar with, but maybe it puts them in some more perspective. So we'll read a few of these. You're welcome to turn to them if you'd like, or you can just hear them. Either one is fine. But one is Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6. And we read this, speaking about the Lord Jesus. It says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Next word. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory, what do you know, of God the Father. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death on a cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him. We hear it as well in Isaiah 53. We referenced that before, but starting in verse 12 of that chapter, after it has described the depths of Jesus' selfless submission and obedience. So verse 11 ends that and says, and he shall bear their iniquities. After that piece, then we read verse 12, which starts, what do you know, with the word, therefore. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. See, we're used to hearing these passages, I think, but we often don't notice that there's a clear obedience-reward dynamic being described between the Father and the Son. And that's exactly what Jesus says very simply here in verse 32. If God is glorified in him, then God also will glorify Jesus in himself. And he adds there in verse 32, and will glorify him immediately or it means quickly. This reciprocal response is going to come very quickly. And he's speaking of a glory that is to come after that. What is that prize that we're hearing him speak about? What is the glory with which the Father is going to respond to the Son? Jesus mentions these same things in John 17, and he says something there that is really helpful for us in this question. John 17 Verses 4 and 5 is what I'll read. Listen to this. See if you hear the same obedience-reward dynamic. Jesus prays to his Father, and he says, <clears throat> He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Those are some helpful details. What is this glory that the Son is going to receive from the Father? It says he will receive it in the presence of the Father. He says it will, it will involve a return to glory that they share together in eternity. What is this describing? This is speaking of Jesus' ascension into heaven to the glorious throne at the Father's right hand. This is what is given to the Son. This is what we read about in Philippians 2, that God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. And my friends, it's exactly what we read in Daniel chapter 7, all the way back in the prophets. Daniel sees a vision of the coming final victory that God is going to work through his servant. And here's what we read there. Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." That sounds exactly like Philippians chapter 2. It is exactly like Philippians chapter 2. We read there, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What are we seeing? Daniel 7 is looking ahead at exactly what Philippians 2 is looking back at. Do you see this? The New Testament is such the direct and perfect completion of the Old Testament. And what has it all been about? It has all been about the glory of the Lord that will shine forth in the person of His Son. We find that's what this whole thing has been about ever since God said, let there be light. He had a plan in mind, and this is the plan. We're built to marvel at these things. We marvel at 
the Lord of the Rings. We marvel at Narnia. We marvel at the wing feather saga. We marvel at the ways that a human author builds a whole world and can weave a beautiful and coherent story through it. I mean, across volumes. We love it. But as man feels the urge to do that kind of thing, and as man loves it when it's found, all we're finding is that we are bearing the image of our God. Because this is who God is. This is what God has done with us. God has woven thousands of years of human history together to tell his story, which is a story about his love for his son. And he has so guarded the telling of this story that through the means of around 40 different human authors over all of that time, the story has stayed right on point. It has cohered perfectly. I told you, verse 31 and 32 gives us a chance to really go big picture here. And we're not going to waste that opportunity here this morning. But it also moves us forward in what we're hearing from our Lord as he says this. Because in verse 32, Jesus is moving past thoughts only of glory at the cross. He has in mind the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. So he moves beyond just the cross and its glory to thoughts of glory at the right hand of God. It is all at last glory that he is about to receive. And he anticipates it as such. And it's wonderful. But what does that mean for the disciples? Well, in the most immediate, it means he's about to leave them. That's what it means. And this is what he says in verse 33 as we move to the second focus this morning, the departure of Jesus. He says to them, little children, yet a little while I am with you. I'm only with you for a small time more. Do you hear the tenderness in his voice? This is the only time in John's gospel that this word little children is used. It clearly meant a lot to John. It'll show up seven times in the book of 1 John as he writes to his beloved church. Jesus is speaking to them about this, not in a way that's so wrapped up with the anticipation of glory that he fails to consider how this is going to affect them right now. He is doing all of this as an act of what? Verse 1 of this chapter. He is loving his own to the end. And he knows that this is going to be hard for them to hear. I mean, we can hardly imagine what it would be like to get to live three years in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. But my goodness, what would it be like to have experienced that and then to find that it was about to end? And on goes your life. Now, would you agree, based on what you know that Jesus is doing for them, would you agree that in reality they don't need to be afraid I hope that you agree with that. They don't actually need to be afraid because of what Christ is doing for them. But they don't understand a lot of things right now, do they? They do not understand the kind of provision that their Lord is making for them. And so he starts to tell them about his departure. And as he does that, what we're now getting into is Jesus is informing of them of exactly how he is going to provide for them. So it's going to span quite a bit going forward, well beyond this week. He starts by simply announcing it, right? Only a little longer will I be with you. And in terms of his telling them about this departure, he says something else in verse 33. He says, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He has told the Jews that. That's the hostile crowds, the Pharisees. He's told them that twice already that's recorded for us. John 7, 33, John 8, 21. And he's telling it to them. They need to know that this departure is coming quickly and that it is an actual physical separation from Jesus that they will not be able to resolve. And this is a point, I'll just pause here, where I... I will ask your forgiveness. Please don't be mad at me. I, I, 
I think Blake might be mad at me this morning for this. I don't know. But I want us this morning to skip over the commandments of verses 34 and 35. The call to love one another so that we can keep thinking about this departure. Uh, next week, we're going to give the entire time next week to verses 34 and 35. So we will be there. It's incredibly significant. All right? But know that, tuck that away, and let's jump over that and keep thinking about how Jesus is handling the fact of his departure. Do you forgive me for that, Blake? I, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, and I want to do that because uh, no sooner does he tell them this very hard thing in verse 33 which really is that he's describing a way in which they're going to be like the rest of the world. They're going to seek him and be unable to follow where he goes. No sooner does he tell them that than he distinguishes them from the rest of the world. Down in verse 36, Simon Peter latches on to this announcement. We'll talk about it next week. It's interesting. He just completely bypasses what Christ says in 34 and 35. You can tell how much this news of his departure has affected Simon. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Notice how Jesus answers him. Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. That's hugely significant. This physical separation between us, it's going to be temporary. And the reason that that's so important is they were there as Christ said the same thing to the Jews. He knows what else. They know what else he said to the Jews. And this is quite a different outcome from what he had predicted for them. John 8, 21. And please do turn back here and see this with me. John 8, 21. It's one of the places where he told the Jews this. It reads, So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin." Where I am going, you cannot come. A bit further down. He said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. My friends, that is not the case for the eleven, is it? He's not telling the eleven that in their searching for him, they are doomed to die in their sins. No, he says, where, I, where he is going, they are going to follow him afterward. They're not the same as the world in those ways. But why? I mean, that can't be good enough for us to just say that they're not the same. Why are they not the same? Well, what's different about this eleven? And at one level, you can see the difference from what Jesus just said there in John 8. Those who belong to Jesus are like Jesus in that they are also not of this world. It's exactly what Jesus will say of them in John 17, 14, as he's praying to the Father for his people. He'll say, they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world. That's the difference in the 11. They are not of this world. They have come to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. It's one way we could answer the question, what's different about them? But it still doesn't get at the root of this. It just begs another question. And it's a question that moves us into our third and final resting place this morning. The question is, really, how they get that way? How is it that they are no longer of this world? They were born into this world, same as anybody else. How can Jesus say of them that they are not of this world, even as I am not of this world? Or in terms of the belief that he describes in John 8, how is it that they believe Jesus is who he says he is? That brings us to the problem with Peter. It's a problem for him. He is so useful in these Gospels in giving Christ the opportunity to further expand or clarify. Listen to Peter's response to Jesus in verse 37. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Does it seem improper to imagine the word after all 
in between there? Why can I not follow you now? After all, I will lay down my life for you. Peter's confusion seems to stem from the thought that this inability Jesus is describing is there because of some deficiency of devotion. Why can't I follow you now? After all, there's no limit to my devotion to you, and therefore, what could prevent me from following you wherever you would go? And it seems to me that Peter has two problems here, really. One is that the, the distance that's going to separate them is not going to be about one's level of devotion. What's going to separate them are inescapable realities, namely two. One will be death. Death is going to separate them. He's going to go to the cross. But most directly to what Jesus is talking about here, what's going to separate them is going to be Jesus' ascension into heaven. And it's interesting because in both of those cases, what Jesus says is right. When he says to Peter, Peter, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. You will join me in death here in about three decades. But then you will also follow me in going to the Father. But that's maybe one problem for Peter. He doesn't understand the very practical necessities that are going to separate them. But even more problematic is what he views as the source of their unity in the first place. You can hear it in his voice. Wherein lies Peter's assurance of unity with Jesus? Where is that assurance found? Can you tell? I will lay down my life for you. Can you tell that it lies in Peter? And friends, that is a big problem. And it had better create in our own minds the same question. Wherein lies your assurance of unity with Jesus? Get that wrong, and in your life you are destined for the same shock that Jesus is about to give to Peter. If your confidence is found in a sense of self-confidence, what's happening to you is you're living in a state of pride that is just waiting for a fall, like the Proverbs warn us. What's going to come of Peter's self-confidence? Look at verse 38. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, The rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And when Jesus puts it that way, it really highlights the irony in all this, doesn't it? As he restates his question, will you lay down your life for me? Who is, who is it that is living and dying for whom here? The confidence arrow is exactly backwards. But we see him handle Peter in a way that we're familiar with as God's people. If you're walking with the Lord this morning, you have experienced this probably more than once. To our shame and in our flesh, we need this, and he's faithful to give it to us over and over again. Our God knows what to bring into our lives to love us by putting our hope and confidence onto the right things. He is in the business of destroying idols. And he tells self-confident Peter, here on this evening, the next morning light is not going to shine before you have denied that you know me three times. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> We're going to see as we move on, Jesus has a lot more to say to his disciples in this farewell discourse. It is not all easy to hear. Some of it continues to be confusing. It creates a lot of questions in the disciples' minds. Several disciples, in fact, step up and ask questions. Peter is not going to speak again in this entire thing. He won't say another word. He has been. humbled into silence. And we know Peter. 
For Peter to be shocked into silence means that Peter has been reached here. He has been deeply unsettled by this revelation, what his Lord has just told him. And he's not the only one. Because if something could lead Peter, why are we saying Peter? Because Jesus himself named Peter the rock. If something can lead Peter to such a place of fear and unfaithfulness, then what does that mean for the rest of them? But see, this is why the chapter break is so potentially problematic, because that fear and uncertainty was the point behind what Jesus has just told them. They need to lose their self-confidence. And he doesn't leave them there. He puts them right where he wants them, and then immediately he says what we find in 14.1. The next thing out of his mouth is, let not your hearts be troubled. Your, plural. They're not just talking to Peter. Their self-confidence is shot. Minutes ago, they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in God's kingdom. And now the one who was probably a finalist in their debate has just been told this. And Jesus says, listen, your confidence does not need to be shot. Your heart does not need to be troubled. It just needs to take its stand in the right place. My friends, this is what love and kindness looks like, isn't it? When God shakes your world at times, he's not being cruel. He is rooting out idols that he knows are going to fail you if you lean upon them. And he is leading you back to the only safe and sure ground that there is. He is causing you to stand, just like he promised he would. He says to them, here's the right place. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You hear the logic in what he's saying? I'm leaving for your sake, and if that's the case, then of course I'm going to come back for you. I don't need you to lay down your lives for me. I am going to lay down my life for you. Don't believe in yourselves. Don't trust in yourselves. Trust your heavenly Father. And therefore, trust the one that he has sent to make the way to him. In fact, to be the way to him. Yes, that famous verse 6 is just a few verses away now, isn't it? It's the context in which he says that to them. He's telling them here, whatever physical distance they are about to have from Jesus, he's leaving them in order to serve them. So it will be for their good that he goes away. And if his departure is for them, then how could it be that he would not come back for them? And you can see here at this point, can't you? He is not talking about the departure of his death anymore here, is he? He's talking about the departure of his ascension. So that what he is promising here is, in fact, his second coming, for which we continue to wait with eagerness. He is promising to come again. He is promising that when he comes, he will bring them, the eleven, to be with him. And I assume you all realize this, but those men all died now some time ago. So what he's doing, in fact, is he's staking his honor on the fact that when he comes, he is going to resurrect those who have died in him and will be with them forever. What do you think? Is he doing a good job of comforting and encouraging these men? I mean, they, know, they, they doubtless do not yet understand everything that he's saying, but they are hearing what they need, not only to face the next 24 hours with courage and confidence, but to face the rest of their earthly lives with courage and confidence. And my friends, it's exactly what you and I should be hearing too. These promises are for those whom Christ has willed to guard and to keep. And he wrapped you and me into all these promises when he prayed to his Father in John 17, 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. 
Are you starting to sense that what Jesus is saying to his disciples here, he is saying in view of his upcoming ascension. What I love about that is it's suddenly putting the disciples in the same sphere, that of waiting for his return, the same sphere that you and I have lived our whole lives in and will live our whole lives in unless he comes. What's amazing about the lives of the apostles is that for most of the gospels, if you think about it, they are characters of the Old Testament. As they come to know Jesus and believe in him, they are Old Testament saints. The blood shed at the cross is the blood of the new covenant. The establishment of the new covenant community does not take place until Pentecost. And as Jesus looks ahead to the glory of his ascension, what he's doing is he's preparing these 11 for life as New Testament believers, a group of believers characterized by eager waiting and anticipation for the return of their Lord. It's kind of crazy to think about that, about those whose lives span the bridge from Old Testament to New Testament, Old Covenant to New Covenant. But it should drive the point home all the more that as Jesus comforts and encourages them in this context, this new place that they are about to walk, he's equipping them for the context in which we find ourselves. So this morning, my prayer is that God's people are comforted and encouraged in the knowledge that our salvation is the result of a perfect plan, a perfect promise made in eternity between the Father and the Son, which cannot fail to come to pass. And in fact, which has been accomplished. All that remains is for generation after generation, for that accomplished plan of redemption to be applied to sinners by the work of the Holy Spirit. God's people take comfort in that, in the certainty of the thing. And we take comfort this morning in hearing our Lord himself promise that he is coming back for us. It moves us today, this week, going forward. It moves us with the courage and the hopefulness that is proper to such a promise. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your perfect word this morning. You are so faithful to feed a hungry and needy people. We pray, God, that you will use your word in your people's lives to purify our affections, strengthen our consciences, renew our devotion to you. We joyfully confess together this morning Father, our King, the Lord Jesus, is enthroned at your right hand. We ask you to lead us by your Spirit to honor our King. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.